recently went to an estate auction of Tom T. Hall's personal stuff. I guess Tom T. must have been cleaning out a garage or a basement and just getting rid of a lot of things. They had a lot of really great items. One in particular was a, a pool table that was Tom T.'s. They told a story about how George Jones once passed out drunk on top of the pool table. and Tom T. threw a blanket over him and let him sleep the whole night. And George woke up the next morning having no idea where he was or how he got there. After hearing that story, I had to have it. I have nowhere to put a pool table, but I had to have it. And I started bidding on it. I had myself convinced that maybe it would somehow fit in my kitchen, and I figured I'd just explain it to Amy when I got home. But I don't like spending money, so I'm not going to bid very much on stuff at an auction. I'm looking for the deals. I'm that guy. And once it got up over two, $300, it got out of my league. And it ended up selling for $600 to a singer-songwriter guy here in Nashville who's amazingly talented, and a whole lot of you probably have his records but I won't out him here. It was also a really nice wall clock that went up for auction. It was a wedding present from Harlan Howard to Tom T. and Dixie Hall back when they got married way back when. And I wanted that. Once it got up to $200, I gave up on it. Ended up missing out on that. There's also a really nice old typewriter. I think it was from the 1930s that Tom T. supposedly wrote a lot of songs on and he even wrote his book using that typewriter. And I wanted that pretty bad, but it went for way more money than I was ever gonna spend. So there's always one guy at an auction who's waiting to, for nobody to bid on something, and they'll just say $1 and they'll give it to the guy. I'm usually that guy. And my moment finally came when there was a box of miscellaneous junk that nobody wanted. And I went ahead and just bid a couple dollars on it, and they gave it to me. I got home, and I started digging through it. And there's a lot of stuff. I don't know what it was, but uh, there was an old handkerchief from Gillies, which was pretty fun to have. But one thing I did notice was there was a key to the city from the town of Paintsville, Kentucky, that they had presented to Tom T. Hall. And I did a little bit of research on that, and I found out that uh, back in the 60s, Tom T., was arrested while speeding through Paintsville, Kentucky. He had expired tags on his car, and he didn't have his driver's license with him. So they threw him in jail. The judge was out of town attending a funeral, so they couldn't get to Tom T's hearing, and he ended up being in jail for a week. And when he got out, he wrote a song called A Week in a County Jail. Some of you guys might remember that song, but that was Tom T's first number one song. I guess years later, the town of Paintsville, Kentucky, wanted to make it up to Tom T. So they brought him to town, and they presented this key to the city to him. But I guess Tom T. went home and threw it in a junk box, and now it's sitting on a bookshelf in my living room. It might be safe to say that Tom T. Hall has a long memory. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. 
I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Lou Bradley. Lou is a legendary recording engineer. He was the head engineer at the Quonset Hut, where he recorded some of the greatest records in country music history. You can find out everything you need to know about Lou at musicianshalloffame.com. I got a message from Mike Bubb asking if I'd like to have lunch with Lou Bradley. And Mike's also the person that told me about that Tom T. Hall auction. So Mike's quickly becoming one of the show's best friends. But I said, of course, I'd love to meet Lou. We sat around a table listening to Lou tell stories about recording some of the, you know, the greatest singers in country music history. And then we went over to the Musicians Hall of Fame where Lou had just been inducted. And we walked around and looked at the exhibits. And finally, I asked Lou if he would be nice enough to be on this show. He was generous and warm, and he even invited me over to the Quonset Hut where we recorded this. And on this particular episode, we're talking about behind closed doors, Charlie Rich, Billy Sherrill, Pig Robbins, the people that made that wonderful album possible. Lou was super generous with his time and was nice enough to share whatever memories he has of that particular record. Here's Lou Bradley. I met Charlie Rich uh, on session here. That's where I first met Charlie Rich. I started, I, I went to work for Columbia in 1969, June of 69, middle of June. And uh, almost immediately started doing Billy Sherrill records. And so uh, he was recording Charlie Rich. So I started working with Charlie Rich and Billy. And uh, that was uh, where I first met him. Of course, I was like everybody else, a fan. Well, he started out, he was on Sam Phillips label. He had, uh, Lonely Weekends and Sitting and Thinking and stuff. And then he was on RCA. And Chet had signed him to R- The whole industry, he was like Wheelie. The whole industry loved him. But the public didn't. And I, I believe this about Charlie Rich. Charlie Rich had more sex appeal. We can talk about this later than any man I was ever around. He could walk in a room and you could literally hear the panties blow out. I don't know if you can use that, but <laughs> that's the truth. When he sang to the ladies, he had big hits. And and the record just before, he liked to do blues and jazz and stuff like that. That's what he liked to do. But when he sang a song to the ladies, like a love song, oh, they loved it. And uh, the record just before Behind Closed Doors, the same guy that wrote Behind Closed Doors, Kenny O'Dell, I back it on up and take it on home, was the record we did just before that. And, and that that did, you know. That did pretty good for him, but it was not the blockbuster that uh, Behind Closed Doors was. You know, they have a few days of, up in Billy's office probably, you know, before we record. And uh, Had yeah. you heard the song before? Nope. I never recorded? heard the song until we recorded it. I think the piano is just amazing on that whole album. It's just well, that's beautiful. Pig Robbins playing the piano. And the interesting thing about that, I showed you how we, out in the studio there, how we uh, set up. We had a spot down there, the control room, where the singer would normally stand. It worked really good there. 
in the background singers. Billy felt that Charlie would be more comfortable standing right by the piano. He could almost touch Pig on his shoulder. That's a, you know, right down the middle of the band. The drums are on the other side of the piano from him. He said, I believe he'll be more comfortable there. Well, we started cutting these big hits and we cut everybody that way. I had to, and when I moved Charlie down there, to move the background singers down there too. So they're standing right there where they can hear him and see him. And uh, it, they're all down there in a big wad. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it worked. The intro to Behind Closed Doors, yeah. did Pig Robbins come up with mm-hmm. that? As far as I know, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure Pig came up with that. And uh, Was everybody welcome to just pitch in ideas for a song like that? Well, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what what happened in this room right here, in this town, was a way to make records. You could walk in that back door out of that alley with an idea, and three hours later, you could walk out here with three hits. There you. When I first started here in '69, there was a what I called a little magic time period when they'd start. They'd, somebody would sing the song, the writer or the artist, if he if he wrote it or whatever. Or we had a demo to play, we'd play it. They'd write them a chord chart, start working up the arrangement. And it, that would be back a, lot, a little, about a 10-minute period of experimentation. And uh, a lot of magic happened in that time. Somebody would hear something that nobody else heard, and they'd gravitate to that. It might be something way the drummer heard it or the piano player or one of the guitar players and, uh, or the bass player in a way to approach the chord progression or whatever. And they all... We're getting familiar with the song. I noticed that at some point later on in the 70s, toward the end of the 70s, some of the smart producers said, well, if I get with my, my, my leader, somebody's always the leader on a session, one of the musicians. Get with the leader and write the chord charts out in front. Well, that was like sitting an arrangement. I noticed they didn't want to do, change from that. They didn't, they didn't want to change it. They wanted to play what was on that chart right then. And... Uh, that's almost like a written score. And that was one thing that Nashville had going for it. Uh, they would not uh, be locked in to a written score, like maybe in New York or L.A. And, and of course, it, that all changed over time. People would experiment more on sessions. I noticed that once they started coming in with the, just putting a, a number chart on everybody's music stand, that little 10-minute window went away where somebody might hear it a quite a different way and boy that everybody gravitated to that and it was it was really good it could have been on the demo something similar to that or charlie but sometimes charlie would sit down and fool with it and, and pig uh, would pay attention to what he was doing or, or billy sherrill could have come up with that i don't know uh, i just know that's what they came up with and uh, it worked <laughs> it's one of the all-time great intros oh, yeah. to the song when we cut that and the record was shipped to New York, they and our people up there in the middle, you know, it breaks. You got that break and, and the Kerrigan that does a drum side stick and then Pig plays plays again, you know. The people in uh, New York said, it's a little empty in the middle, isn't it, Billy? He said, it's a hit. Put it out. And the engineer in Memphis told me, he said, I about wrecked my car when that thing stopped in the middle. And Pig started again. He said, that was so cool. Well, uh, you had uh, Herschel Wigginton's group, the Nashville edition, you know, that was on Hee Haw. It was Herschel and Joe Babcock. Herschel Wigginton was a bass singer, and Joe, and uh, Dolores Edgen and Wendy Suits. And then uh, the ba- were the background singers. 
He was on piano. Tommy Alsop was playing bass guitar. That's tic-tac bass. Henry Strelecki is on bass. Uh, Jerry Kerrigan's a drummer. Two acoustic guitar players, and I'd have to go look and see. Cause and Billy Sanford's on electric. Pete Drake's on steel. And then we overdubbed strings. And uh, Billy had a pecking order on, on his lead player, lead, electric lead. If Jerry Kennedy was here and Billy Sanford walked in, he'd see Kennedy. He'd go get his acoustic guitar because he knew this what he was going to play without a word being said. If Sanford walked in and didn't see Kennedy, he'd go get his electric because he'd be the lead player. Well, if Pete Wade walked in and saw neither Kennedy or Sanford, he'd go get his electric. You see, they knew the pecking order, and uh, I never heard them discuss it at all. Those guitar players knew you know, what they were hired to do, and uh, if a certain guy was there, he was going to be the lead player. I heard uh, Bill Russell, a great basketball player, say one time, he said, if you want to watch a great basketball player, watch what he does when he doesn't have the ball. That's what determines a great player, the stuff he does when he, he's not – the main guy with the ball. And and the same is true with session players. That song was not a guitar song. It was uh, piano, steel, you know. Billy Sanford's playing lead on it. Listen, next time you hear it, listen to the bridge. There's a nice little tasty lick in the bridge. But Sanford would hunt around to, to what his role was and fill it or come up with something that would add. If you turn his track off or turn his mic off, uh, where'd the record go? But he was not the main guy, you know. And that's what a great session player is. He, he, he figures out what his role is on that, that song that day, that cut, and does it. You know. and, and all of them that worked with Billy would do that. I used to give some little songwriters start hanging around new to town, you know. I could tell, I'd hear some of their stuff, and so they might have some talent, and I was and try to give them some good advice and show them something that, that might help them, you know. A lot of times they'd be here on a 2 o'clock and we wouldn't be anything behind us. And I said, I'm going to play you two cuts here and see if you can tell the difference. And I'd go get the behind-closed-door master and play the whole thing through once as we recorded it, then play it through the second time, and there was two lines changed in the last verse. And I'd watch them, see if they picked up on that. I said, what you heard was a credited hit writing songwriter who took some constructive criticism from somebody that he trusted and respected, Billy Sherrill. Because Billy said the last verse needs to be stronger. The original lyric almost led you to believe they went behind closed doors and held hands. You know, it was a little milder. And they and for the life of me, now I can't remember what two lines they changed. I, I said, and Kenny O'Dell went to school on what Billy asked him to do. And he made a great song, A Monster, because it, it, it made that last verse stronger. How long did the session take to cut the basic track? We, we cut about three. We'd cut three songs and, and sometimes four, mostly. We did do three or four in, in, in three hours. You know, we'd do three sessions, have an album, the basic tracks, and we might do overdub. We'd, we'd use a lot of live vocals. And, uh, and we'd, like on that, we overdubbed strings. Mixed her down. <laughs> like the reverb sound is just amazingly great, and it seems like a huge part of Charlie Rich's vocal sound. On well, that. we had these good EMT chambers, and like uh, two, two things about the reverb on that, and if we talk about The Most Beautiful Girl, there's a, a little sideline on that too, which was another cut that we did later that when it was in that album. 
I used EMT, and, and we'd put the uh, a slap back behind the EMT, and I'd, I'd have the straight EMT coming back, and uh, and then going through a tape machine to delay in. You could use more or less of that. You know, you fool with that to get a good, warm, full vocal sound. And like on drums, on that, he was, Kerrigan was doing, uh, he was playing Old Red. He had a red snare drum I called Old Red. And uh, he's playing Old Red on behind closed doors. And I remember he played, the, he had a maple one. I never named it. It was a, a maple snare, a little deeper, on Beautiful Girl. I loved Old Red. I, I, later I said, you sold that drum. I'd like to have bought it just to have it. But he, uh, on a song where uh, he was playing a side stick, or the drummer's playing, you know what I'm talking about, a side stick where they lay it over and hit the rim. A lot of guys want to make that real narrow and skinny and go crack. I tried to make the side stick go talk. If, if you have a whole verse of crack, crack, that gets old. But talk lays better against when he goes to the snare and to the vocal, and it's, it's, not, it's more pleasing. And I'd also use a, a live, we had a live room chamber. The, on the, the one I used on that was down the basement. And uh, I'd use that on cuts where we had the old side stick going generally in the verses. And then they'd kick it up in the, in the bridges or ver- courses and he'd, he'd go over to the snare. But Kerrigan was a good drummer. He listened to the singer. Wasn't he a Muscle Shoals guy? He was a, him. The original Muscle Shoals rhythm section was Kerrigan and David Briggs. And Norbert Putnam and Jimmy Johnson at uh, fame. And uh, the three that came up here, uh, Briggs and Kerrigan and uh, Putnam, you know, and they, they really made the, all of them made their mark up here. But Kerrigan was a great drummer. He uh, Good drummers listened to the singer, worked with uh, Buddy Harmon, worked with Larry London. And, uh, recently I've worked with uh, George Vaselli, who's Bob Dylan's drummer, Haggard. I was doing Haggard and Haggard. Worked some shows with Dylan and fell in love with. Him. So we, when we could, we'd get Rosselli out there. He's a New Orleans guy, but he uh, is a, a drummer. Plays with feeling, but listens to the singer. And uh, that, if, you know, if you just get in there and play, that's not what a, a drummer on a session needs to do. He needs to listen to the song and the singer, and, and figure out what to do. And those great session drummers do that. Billy Sheridan would use a player, some of them wanted double scale. Now, there was one player always in the room that got double scale. That was whoever the leader was. Whoever was the designated leader of the group, he got double scale because he had some responsibilities the others didn't have. But Cheryl said, why should I pay? And sometimes he'd use some of those double scale guys if the artist pushed him to use them. You know, I want this guitar player or this guy or whatever. But he said, why should I pay a guy double when Pig Robbins is sitting over paying the best piano you can get for scale? You know, I think right. <laughs> you know, so he wouldn't. <laughs> if, unless the artist just wanted wanted to, and he was trying to appease the artist. You know. I hate to dwell on the Pig Robbins stuff, but this well, is a testament. He's a good friend and a great player. That whole album is a testament to just how great a player he, he is. Oh, he's, he's got so much taste and... Uh, Pig Robbins is an amazing individual. He's blind. Most people, some people don't know that, but he's blind from in his youth. He was blinded in his youth. It was an accident. But he went to the school of the blind, and from, he came out of the school of the blind with a job. He's earned his way the whole time. 
I admire that about Pig Robbins. He was work when he came out of the school for the blind. He worked developing film in a lab because they didn't work in the dark. Then he started playing. He could play piano. And he started playing gigs around and uh, started recording his first big hit. Number one he played on was uh, White Lightning. He told me that. I just love working with that guy, and we're good friends. We go to eat catfish every once in a while. He lives about a mile and a half from me. Just a super guy. One time. If you want Pig Robin stories, we had 39 pieces out here. I mean, wall to wall was doing O.C. Smith, big orchestra, strings, horns, background singers, percussion, four guitars and uh, drums, bass, two keyboards. And Briggs was playing the, the, the acoustic piano and Pig was playing either electric or, or, and so we did an old song that Dorsey Burnett had a hit on back in the 60s called The Tall Oak Tree. It was a tall oak tree. And it got a uh, great arranger, H.B. Barnum was the ranger conductor. And we started working that up, and they put Pig on Hammond B3 organ. And if anything will hang over on a break uh, would be an organ. Well, Pig's on Hammond, and they run through it the first time. They've got six conducted breaks when they stop. Pig hung over on every one of them. And Jerry Fuller's the producer. He says... Uh, Rick, we need to put some over there, poke pig on them cutoffs. I said, if pig needs help, he'll ask for it. We did six takes, six breaks. Pigs never missed another break. Right on it. He said, that's amazing. And guys watching the conductor missed them. But here, <laughs> here's this blind guy. And I said, let me tell you, Jerry, he was paying attention the first time they went through. That's how, how, how much a blind person, especially pig, had to pay attention. He sensed the timing, and so he wasn't going to vary, vary from that. And he was right on on every take. You know, he, he was amazing. And uh, one time he said the lights went out of the studio, <laughs> and uh, it was obvious to Pig what had happened from the convert. You know what people were saying. And Pig got up and said, "Ha ha ha! I'm the only one here knows this. Three chairs, two mic stands, and a mic boom between me <laughs> and the and the door walked out." <laughs> Well, uh, Charlie Rich, I asked Pig one time, I said, uh, what's it like? He said, I was nervous. He said, he's a heck of a piano player. There he is right at my shoulder. You know, when, when we started recording him right there by the piano. Earlier, I alluded to the fact Charlie had the sex appeal. It was unreal, the, the appeal he had to the ladies. And we did a session. We had two sessions one day, a 10 and a 2. The sessions used to be, uh, still are, I guess, there were four sessions possibilities during the day, a 10 o'clock to one, a, a two to five, a six to nine, and a uh, 10 to one, you know, in the morning. And uh, we had a, two, a 10 and a two. And Daryl Royal, the Texas football coach, came. He was a Charlie Rich fan. So I had him a stool sitting right over the console. And then I had him one out in the bass and drums and piano right there where you could see Charlie, you know. And so he He'd sit in here for a while, and he'd go out there. And he was just having a good time. He stayed for both sessions. And he invited Charlie and Billy to a Texas football game, be on the sidelines. And Cheryl showed me this. He said, we walked out. It was before the game, and we walked out there. And both bands were on the field and the cheerleaders and all that. And he said, Charlie Rich stepped out on that field. And every woman in both of them, bands and the cheerleaders, they started running out of mob us. He said, I was scared. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. 
I mean, they was going to mob Charlie Rich. Whatever he had, you couldn't buy a bottle or sell, man. He had it. And so uh, my first daughter was born, and we were doing a Charlie Rich album. And it was one session the, the night and morning that she was born I didn't get to do because I was at the hospital. And one of the other guys had to do that session. Well, then, and my wife had to have a cesarean, so she was in the hospital about two or three days. So I would do the session and go back to the hospital, you know, at five. And so we'd done a two o'clock, and I went back over there. And the nurse from the nursery was this old, heavy-set black woman who was just a sweetheart. She first, when the first brought the baby in, she's teaching me how to do the diaper. She said, "Most guys don't want to do diaper." I said, "Well, I can change it when we get home, so I might as well learn now." So she was just a sweetheart. Well, I went over there after the five, you know, at five. And he said, "How'd the session go, my wife?" And said, "Well." Went real good. Said, that Charlie Rich said he he might come over and see you. That woman exploded. Lord, that good looking silver hat devil's coming over here. I won't be able to stand it. I said, hey, I don't care who you are, what race or your age, whatever Charlie Rich had, it appealed to him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right then I knew that it it had no barriers. Sing so well. Oh yeah, he had his own style, man. When you heard him, you knew who he was. I, I love recording him. You know, some of the songs that weren't hits on Behind Closed Door albums. I mean, he sounded like Bing Crosby type crooner. Oh yeah, he's a, Johnny was a, a musical guy. It was, you know, and, and he and Cheryl had gone back to Sam Phillips days. In fact, Cheryl recorded the Sitting and Thinking hit that was cut in Nashville, not in Memphis. Sam Phillips built the studio here, and Cheryl was an engineer for Sam Phillips down at, on the 7th Avenue. They built it down on 7th Avenue. Later it became Monument. Uh, Sam sold it to Fred Foster, and that's where the first record they cut in there, I think, was Pretty Woman. Working with Charlie was, you know, you, you, had, you had to be on your toes because, as I said, we was cutting live, everybody all there in a, in a group, but it worked. We, would, we did an album with Andy Williams and he's right down in there by the piano. As I said, it, Billy did everybody there after we recorded uh, Behind Closed Doors. <laughs> he said, this is too good to not do with everybody. And uh, so that was a hand I was dealt and I had to play it. But uh, I'm, I'm in here getting ready to record and this guy comes in the control room. He introduced himself. His name's Dick Glasser. And I knew who he was. He said, I've been producing Andy in Hollywood and I'm here for no other reason. I'm not here to do anything other than ask you a question. I said, I might know the answer. He said, how did you get to cymbal sound on the most beautiful girl? <laughs> but Charlie Rich. The console area was raised up about four inches. They had built it up. And then they built a wall where that rose up there to keep people off your back so you could go around either side of it. But they couldn't just get, get over your back and the producer's back. So. I got him a stool. I said, sit right there and I'll, uh, I'll show you. I said, the first time they go through, I'll be ready to record. I'll get my mix up and I'll take my hands off the controls and show you. Well, I could see a doubting Thomas a little bit in his eyes back there. I'm kind of watching out of my eyes. And they, and we're doing one of those pretty ballads that Tammy recorded, bit of Cheryl and wrote. It was more than a three chord country song. So when you're cutting live and you have leakage, leakage is where the sound of one thing leaks over in another mic. I won't get into big technical thing, but 
if they're not together, that leakage uh, makes it sound even worse. Okay. But when they get together, it adds. Oh, it's good. And so they start, and uh, first time through, they're still feeling their way, you know, with this unusual, you know, more chord changes than, as I said, a three chord song. Second time through, I can hear them getting tighter. And then the third time through, I can hear them really getting, boy, about halfway through, they locked in and they come dancing out of the speakers. And a big grin came on the guy's face. I'm watching him out of car. He said, it was the leakage into the vocal mic, wasn't it? And I said, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I'd have never got it. I worked six hours in an LA studio and never got it. Now, another interesting little sidelight on that record, the next time you listen to it, two little things. Uh, I call it the old Batman lick. The, the acoustic guitars and, and, and the rhythm guys did it. Uh, hey, dum, dum, dum. Yeah, that, that lick there. And Bill McElhinney did the strings, and he really went to town on that. You know, and the strings did that. Dum, dum, and that, that really set that off. That was, that was a neat flavor in that record in the bridge listen to the steel no everywhere else this pete drake could do these great old licks you know that's what i loved about pete he he, he would play these great licks that just fit sometimes like horn licks even oh yeah pete drake was a bit of cheryl's horn like on listen to uh, stand by your man and pete drake's bit of cheryl's horn section what he played in the bridges on that anyway pete playing just some pedal licks, you know. But then he, on a break, he does this high slide. Well, when we, the first time he did it, you know, we was running it down. So I, I rigged up a chamber just on Pete that I could turn on just for that lick. And, and like on the stereo, he's over here with a lot of reverb on him. And then I've got the whole, a whole chamber over here that's nothing but that big slide. And boy, it, it made it zing. So next time you hear behind closed, I met a most beautiful girl, listen for that high slide that Pete did on his steel. Pete, Pete was a good player. You know, he was not the greatest technical steel player, but he listened to the song and he played uh, real commercial. You know, he, he played you a lick that meant something. Something like, listen to what Pete played on the, uh, the Grand Tour with George Jones. He, he's probably got goosebumps on his arm singing to what George is playing to what George is singing, you know, because George is not far from him out there when we the recorded that. There's an interaction between the players when they're hearing each other live and looking at each other in the eye. I call it a together dynamic that you can't get any other way but that way. You, you can make a, a really good sounding record with earphones and everybody isolated in their own little room or overdubbed after the fact, you know, building a record that way. And they, it's going to sound good. But that little spark, I call it the together dynamic. For instance, if you recorded uh, the old big bands, you know, with the horn bands, like Glenn Miller and something, if you recorded all of that separate, the, the dynamics they'd play in with... Uh, play together and then then you did a multi-track recording of the same thing and made each section place separate or you each home player you know what you say <laughs> dog you you could instantly hear the difference when you played the two like you heard the one where there's all live because they're, they're feeling it off each other 
when you say d- dynamics, I know you didn't mean it this way, but maybe this is a Billy Sherrill thing, but the dynamics on that record are well, amazing. Now, now that's another thing. I'm glad you asked me that question. Everybody thought Billy Sherrill's, and a lot of producers tried to copy Billy Sherrill, the dynamic things he'd do. But I took, I took, after working with him 13 years or more, actually I did some stuff for him after Columbia closed, but they thought that was what he was going for, was the dynamics. Well, the dynamics, like Tammy, had this great way to sing verses soft, so he'd make the band play soft. And boy, when she kicked it in, into the bridge and generally the melody went up, the band would kick it, swat it. And the dynamics came from that. He was trying to make the voice happen, the singer and the song happen, and he made the band play in a way to make that happen, not necessarily for the dynamics. That was just a, a side end thing. They it, it nailed it, you know. You can't believe how loud it was. People would come in here, other producers, and say, I want to record just like you record Charlie Rich and Tammy Wynette. I said, come here. So you, your singer's going to stand right there. Now the drums are just a piano width away. Mm-hmm. They were not in a room. They're just open over there. And your background's going to be here. Well, it'd be leaky, just said. That's right. They didn't have the you-know-whats to record that way, but Billy Sherrill did. He was, he was going for feeling. I call some of the way people record now defensively. We record it offensively. We were going for it. Defensively, they want to record so they can change it if they want to. Well, sometimes we'd change things. I'd have to figure out, you know, I'd get leakage. I, I became a, had all kind of little tricks. If I had leakage on a track that I couldn't turn off because the voice, you know, was leaking over everything. Wasn't there a, a phantom vocal and uh there is on behind closed doors if you listen real close, but I hit it so good that it's hard for me to even hear it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, earlier we were talking about the two lines they changed. I was a Charlie Rich fan, and I was I was excited about getting to record him whenever I came to work at Columbia and start working with Billy. Man, and so you know Charlie's going to record, and they pitched him to Billy. You know, and the, he liked those songs. You know, in fact, after Behind Closed Doors was a big hit in the alley right behind the studio where we are. Tell them, tell them where we are. We're in Columbia B Studio, which is the Quonset Hut where Music Road started. And uh, anyway, I ran into Kenny after Behind Closed Doors was like a big hit. And I said, what you doing with all that money, Kenny? He said, I'm paying for nine years of poverty. <laughs> Sometimes you struggle. Behind Closed Doors sold a million and a half singles. The Beautiful Girl sold five million, and the album sold 10 million eventually. It was a good good album for Charlie Rich and Billy Sherrill. I was working for wages. (laughs) But that's what I was here for, you know? Thank you very much for sitting down and chatting with me. I really appreciate it great to be here in the Quonset Hut. That's where it happened.
I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Lou for inviting me over to the Quonset Hut and sharing the stories. You can find out everything you need to know about Lou at musicianshalloffame.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review, leave a comment. Subscribe and you'll get a brand new episode as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.